Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Book Dreams. I'm Julie Sternberg, here as always with Evie O'Hallam. I am so excited for this episode, Eve. I am too. If you've been following the podcast, you know that the last interview we released was way back in February. After three years and 134 episodes, we felt like it was time to take a step back and work on other projects. So since then, we've been releasing what we call bonus episodes from time to time, where we just talk about the books we've been reading. And that was fine. That was all well and good until we had the opportunity to interview a writer whose work we've adored for no exaggeration, most of our lives. New Yorker cartoonist, Roz Chest. Oh my gosh. All right, let's explain how that came to be. Some of you may have heard of the Miami Book Fair. It takes place every November, and it is the largest gathering of readers and writers in the United States. Why have we never been? What is wrong with us? I don't know. It just makes no sense, Eve. It makes no sense. Yes, we need to fix that. We will, I promise. Because every year, writers of every genre, from debut novelists to literary legends, gather and give readings. They speak on panels. You know, they sign books. I don't I don't know what else they do because I've never been. But even just imagining it fills me with joy. So when one of the publicists for the fair sent us a list of all the writers who were appearing and asked us whom we wanted to interview... We did not say, oh, sorry, we're not doing interviews anymore. We said, please, 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 can we interview Roz Chast? And Roz said yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. So exciting. I know. Like, just amazing. Uh, If you're not familiar with Roz, do yourself a favor. Seek out her cartoons. You'll probably recognize her work as soon as you see it. She focuses on the anxieties, superstitions, furies, insecurities, and surreal imaginings of modern life. And she is very, very funny. Her cartoons began appearing in The New Yorker in 1978. She has since published more than a thousand cartoons there. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, has called her, quote, the magazine's only certifiable genius. I mean, that is a very high bar (laughs) when you think about all the people who work for The New Yorker. That is really saying something. Roz is the author of the graphic memoirs Going Into Town, What I Hate from A to Z, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Kirkus Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award. And I just want to say, and I know you agree, Eve, if you haven't read Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, you know, forthwith. Yeah, it's so good. She's also published several cartoon collections. Her latest book, I Must Be Dreaming, is a USA Today bestseller, a New Yorker best book of the year, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and a Washington Post best graphic book of the year. I'm always nervous when I meet someone I admire so much. You know, on the one hand, what if I screw up somehow, which, 
you know, that would be the end of the world. And on the other hand, what if the person turns out to be a jerk? You know, there's that terrible fear. But in this case, I really should not have worried. I mean, Roz is exactly what you hope and imagine she will be. She's funny. She's warm. She's insightful and empathetic. She's basically like her cartoons and talking (laughs) with her was pure delight. So we started by asking her why she decided to write about dreams in her new book, especially since, as she says in her introduction, according to many people, dreams as a conversational topic should be avoided along with aches and pains. Only shrinks are interested and maybe not even them. So here's what she said. For me, really, there's two questions. One is like, about the content, and then also, what is this state that we're in when we're dreaming, and why don't we just kind of go blank when we sleep? What are dreams, really? And, you know, the jury is still out. There are, you know, all kinds of different theories from the big guys like Freud and Jung to, you know, ancient Egyptians and Greeks and uh, the Kabbalah. People have been puzzling over this for a long time. Yeah. You've said that you can't remember a time in your life when you weren't drawing. It goes back at least to age three. Yeah. How and why did drawing become cartooning? I don't really know, but I was just always pulled in that direction. There were things about cartooning that really appealed to me. One was that if you like to write and you like to draw, you could do both. And cartooning just seemed like an extremely malleable medium. You know, you could draw comics that were completely visual. You could draw ones that where the drawings were just these little rudimentary things and mostly be writing. It could change according to what, you know, the person making the comic felt like. And I also really liked things that made me laugh. Um, I loved, I discovered Mad Magazine when I was a kid and it just, I just adored it. I think it wasn't just that it made me laugh. It was that it was making fun of things that I knew were really funny, but I didn't see anybody else making fun of them, at least in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know who it was. Maybe Art Spiegelman said it was the first place that he saw, you know, a place where uh, pop culture was made fun of, you know, advertisements and TV shows and things that I knew were kind of stupid. but But I didn't know how to articulate it. Right. So yeah, cartooning for me combined all those things, you know, writing, drawing, and making fun of things, you know, and making jokes. I'm just thinking you've written a lot about your parents. You have this wonderful book. Can't we talk about something more pleasant? You know, that depicts your parents as somewhat fearful and and anxiety-ridden, which I completely relate to as a fearful and anxiety-ridden person. Um, And I'm wondering whether as a child, humor and cartooning allowed you to kind of go into a separate world that kind of helped with a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I, I would say definitely. I think for me, a lot of it was an escape, you know, and being able to create your own little private world where you were sort of in charge and you could make it up how you wanted to make it up. Yeah. As you said, my parents were very anxious. I grew up in a very small apartment. So, you know, even bouncing a ball on the floor was like a big no, no, (laughs) you know, when you can't even bang a nail into the wall 
because, you know, the landlord might find out and you might be thrown out on the street because you're not allowed to do that according to the lease. Um, you know, you're not going to be just sort of sculpting and, you know, making a lot of noise. And cartooning is fairly, uh, you know, low impact. Right. Mm-hmm. It's quiet. Right? It's quiet. You draw on pieces of paper. You don't need, you know, turpentine or a printing press or a potter's wheel or anything. You don't even need color. You don't even need color. Um, you have an immediately recognizable Raw's chest style of cartooning. I assume you weren't already drawing that way at age three, but I also wouldn't be surprised you know, if you came out of the womb cartooning that way. How, if at all, has your style evolved? I like to think it gets better, that I get better at drawing things that I was bad at. I hope that it just gets better, but mm-hmm. that could be an illusion. I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious about what you mean by better. What's the criteria for better? Um, well, you know, I, I have always struggled with a lot of things and, you know, perspective is not my strong suit, but it's gotten better. I have a hard time with trees. I hope that's gotten better. Drawing expressions, uh, that's always been something I like doing and I'm okay at, I think, but I feel like I just want to get better at it, you know, so that what I want to draw, what I wind up drawing is close to what I want to draw. We'd like to ask you a bit about your creative process. Do you tend to think in words and then illustrate after the fact or vice versa? Or, you know, how does that relationship work for you? I'd say 90% of the time, it's an idea in words. But 10% of the time, I'm doodling and something comes from that. I have a niece who's an aspiring illustrator and a huge fan of yours. And she asked me if I could ask you the following question. She's always been struck by how your visual style, down to the quality of your line, is imbued with the same, as she puts it, neurotic tension and zaniness of your written voice. <laughs> and, and Talia's curious about whether there's been a conscious effort on your part to explicitly bring those two closer together, the written voice and the tension of the style. No, not really. That's kind of how it, you know, sort of is. Okay. Mystery solved. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us a little about what it's like to submit cartoons to The New Yorker? You know, how many do you send in each week, hoping that at least one will be accepted? And do they ever accept more than one? You know, that process never gets better or easier. It's really been the same since I started. Uh, The cartoon editor has changed. The editor-in-chief has changed. But it's the same process. There's an art meeting once a week that the cartoonists are not a part of. It's usually whoever is the editor-in-chief of the magazine, the cartoon editor, and sometimes they have a couple of other editors, you know, to just lend another pair of eyes. And all the cartoonists, we each submit what, from the time I started, has been called the batch, as in, like, are you working on your batch? Did you send your batch in yet? Um, how's the batch? You know, oh, I had nothing in my batch this week. It sucked. You know, whatever. It's the batch. And that's like a group of cartoons. They're sketches. And I usually submit about six or seven a week. 
there's people who submit fewer, there's people who submit more, but that's about my average. And they are rough drawings with your gag line or your title or, you know, your speaking balloons. They're just kind of like, for me, there might have patches on them. They might be messy. I might want to, you know, clean them up or something if they do buy them. Mm-hmm. Those are called roughs. And uh, at the art meeting, you know, if there's 40 people, more or less, who submit regularly, and then God knows how many who submit over the transom every week, you know, 100, 200, I don't know, they buy about 20 drawings a week. So even if you're a regular, they're not going to buy from you every week. Mm-hmm. It's like 90% of what I do is rejected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Yeah. And then if they buy it, then you do a finish. I have to say that sounds very familiar. Julie and I are both novelists. Uh-huh. <laughs> what you're describing sounds very, not that we're creating, you know, six novels a week. You just mean the 90% yeah. plus rejection. Yeah, the 90%. <laughs> right. No matter how many books you've had published, you're still not guaranteed the next one. Yeah. No, oh, completely. Never. And in yeah. some ways it gets harder. Yeah. yeah. In my brief experience of putting together books, it's like just because you have finished one book, it doesn't tell you anything about how to do the next book. Yeah. You know, because every book is different. Mm-hmm. Yes, the blank page. I think it gets harder because the more I know about how to write a book, the more I realize how hard it is and, you know, <laughs> what it's going to take to and get And how from- much what I'm doing sucks. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You've said that you were very surprised by the first cartoon of yours that was accepted after you submitted that very first folder with about 60 possibilities. Mm-hmm. Are you better able now to predict, you know, after all these years, which cartoons will end up in the magazine? Are you mostly unsurprised or mostly surprised? Mostly surprised. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways I find that kind of good. I think it probably wouldn't be good if I uh, wasn't surprised. Yeah. It's always, you know, something that I put in my batch that I think, oh, they'll never take this. It's just too weird or it's a collage or it's too personal or it's ridiculous, but it makes me laugh. You know, if they take that, then I'm really happy. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine that individual art directors or art editors must have their own priorities or their likes and dislikes. How do they affect your cartooning, if at all? Were you not even thinking about them? I really try not to think about them. I think that that sort of like is really not a good direction to go in. I mean, for me, this is what I want to do. And I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to do it, you know, my way. And I'm not drawing to please, you know, my editors. I'm not quite sure why I'm doing it sometimes, but um, I hope that they get a kick out of it, but I'm not doing it for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. How does a person get asked to do a cover for The New Yorker? And what was it like the first time it happened to you? The very first cover I sold was actually, I had submitted it as part of my batch. It was in 1986. I had submitted this cartoon. It was a scientist guy pointing to, uh, it was an evolutionary chart of ice cream. And so at the top of the chart, the sort of origins of all ice cream species was this ball of vanilla ice cream. 
and it branched off into, uh, you know, a Sunday, a popsicle, and, you know, it just became all of these other variations of this. I don't know if that's making any sense. Anyway, no, it makes total <laughs> it does, sense. It okay. And um, I'm loving that. Anyway, <laughs> Lee, Lauren said, uh, we'd like you to do this up as a cover. And that was all the instruction he gave me. And so I did it as a cover, and they used it. And for now, if I have an idea that I think might be a cover, I draw it and I submit it, and sometimes they take it and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get, like, suggestions for, like, you know, this holiday is coming up or we'd like a cover on this topic, and I'm not so good at that. Uh, I think my the best ones I do are the ones where I get inspired to do a you know, a drawing rather than, you know, be, getting a prompt. Right. Can you say a little more about long form storytelling versus short form storytelling that you usually do in cartooning? You know, what you like, what you don't like? Um, it's different. You know, I mean, cartoons are very, you know, they're in and out. They're just kind of like you have an idea. It's funny. Hopefully you draw it up and it's done. And I've done cartoons anywhere from like one panel to like 24 panels, like let's say a two-page story or actually more. I've done like four-page spreads. But a long-form book is different. It's just a lot of pages. And, and, uh, you know, you have to think about structure in a way that you don't with a cartoon or a cartoon story. Yeah. So, you know, for me, usually there's a lot of, I mean, even in this dream book, a million false starts and all kinds of ways of trying to give it some structure because, you know, I often think about something, I don't know if you know the writer, humor writer, George Tro. Mm -hmm. He wrote for the New Yorker years ago, and Mm -hmm. he said something about writing once that has really stuck with me, which was... um, that structure keeps the reader from getting tired. And I think that really makes sense. It's not like you have to have this kind of structure all laid out and then you, you know, you're coloring by number. But to just be aware, well, like to go back to the very beginning when you were asking me about like, you know, nobody wants to hear your dreams. The problem with dreams, well, there's a lot of things about telling dreams. For one thing, the way dreams unfold they don't have a narrative structure. They're not episodic in that way. They really almost make no sense. So when you're telling a dream, if you're just like going and then and then and then and then, you know, and having no empathy with the person you're telling it to, you know, that person might want to, they might like stab you by the end of this conversation. They might just, you know, take out a gun and shoot you. I mean, I've heard people give lectures like this where there's just no empathy whatsoever. And I don't mean like giving people what they want and like feeding somebody pablum or something, but just, you know, basic empathy. I don't want somebody to monopolize anything. And if somebody's telling me a story, I'm hoping that they, you know, can shape it in a way that has a little bit of what I guess George Tro would call structure. Mm-hmm. And also, when I wrote up my dreams, as I said, you know, in the beginning, these are fillets of dreams. I'm taking out whatever is just too incomprehensible or maybe in some cases too personal 
Um, you know, somebody might, you know, get their feelings hurt, and I don't want that. So, you know, and I, I was focusing to, you know, on what was funny, because dreams are, to me, often very funny. Even when they're weird, they're funny. You started at The New Yorker when you were 23 years old. How has the world of cartooning changed over the course of your career? In some ways, not at all. It's still drawing, um, you know, what the New Yorker used to call idea drawings. That's what they called cartoons back in the day, before my time. Um, You're still drawing up a funny idea and submitting a group of them and hoping that they take it. Of course, times change. And there are certain things that were considered like just completely hilarious, you know, in the 40s or the 50s that, you know, we just don't do anymore. Did they involve women cooking? Oh, oh, that's nothing. (laughs) I'm talking about like cannibals, you know, the great white hunter, all these tropes that are just like, nope, nope, nope. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, women cooking. Hey, I do cartoons about women cooking. But I think it's just things change. Like back in the day, if you drew a boardroom cartoon, and you put a woman in there, it would probably have attracted like some sort of like, why is there a woman there? You know? Right. But nowadays, if you draw a boardroom cartoon and it's all men, it's weird. It's like, mm-hmm. well, maybe you're making a joke about it being all men. It's a pretty good mirror in some ways of how society changes. Yeah. Sorry. By women cooking, just to be clear, I was thinking of my father collected this book of quotation. He collected a bunch of quotations and um, every single (laughs) quotation about women was talking about how bad a cook his wife was. Um, And I'm a I'm a terrible cook, but (laughs) I don't want to ever see a reference to a wife being a bad cook again. No, No. (laughs) it's like, here's the pan. Here's the spoon. You do your right. own cooking and you don't like right. it. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, you're totally. on thin ice here. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so, th- you know, that changes. And, of course, unfortunately, cartoons, the space, it's smaller. You know, when I look at the old New Yorkers, some of these cartoons had these magnificent, large, black and white drawings, which would be wasted now because, well, mainly they have to look okay on a phone. Um, there are a lot of young people in my life who love your work, and I'm sure that there are just lots of young people all over. I'm wondering what you hear from younger admirers, and do you have a sense of whether different generations vibe to different aspects of your work? I mean, I, I'm so happy that anybody wants to be a cartoonist. It's just amazing to me. And uh, this is going to sound really corny, but I like most cartoonists. They're, we're like a kind of a certain, you know, breed. And I remember in the old days where there were New Yorker parties, I would go and I would think, uh, it's a party, there's so many people, uh, I don't know anybody, I hate this. And then I would look for like the darkest corner and like there <laughs> all the cartoonists would be and we could just like... You know, hang Thank out God. and be like glum and like not oh. mingle and <laughs> not now network. I know we're... Just be like, uh, <laughs> where's the bar? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> that sounds like the kind the place in the party I want to go to. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Do you ever feel grateful for your anxiety and feel like it's worth holding fast to because it feeds your art? Or would you get rid of it fast if you could? Like, if you're Raj Chast and much of your humor captures anxiety, what is the calculation about trying to feel less anxious? Uh, I, I am, like, grateful for everything in my life, really. I know, like, how phony baloney and like you know this is just like a giant bag of frozen corn level <laughs> like a bag from costco uh, <laughs> Big but, <money. laughs> uh, but i really i am as far as anxiety goes um i did uh many years it was probably like 20 something years ago you know hit a wall with it and did have to see a professional and I was very afraid when I started taking certain medications that many people may be familiar with, that it would uh, change things, that I wouldn't be able to get ideas. But at the time, it was really so, you know, I was feeling sort of like, well, I'd rather still be here and take this chance. And if worse comes to worse, I'll just stop taking this thing. I did start taking something that, you know, helped a little bit. I mean, I had to learn to drive when I was 38 and I hate it. I hate it so much. I'm anxious anytime I drive, but I do drive. And that is a big thing mm -hmm. for me. There's a lot of, you know, caveats to that. And I will get out of driving whenever I can. Um, I hate putting gas in my car. It's just like on and on and on. But you know, it's something that I'm glad I can, like, if something happened to my husband, I could drive him to the hospital, you know? Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. I think that, like, to take enough uh, medication to uh, wipe out all the anxiety, I would probably be comatose. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't really tried that yet, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have more than enough familiarity with the medications of which you speak, and it seems that... Um, yeah, the, the anxiety doesn't go away. You know, it's just no, it doesn't go more away. manageable. Yeah. Right. It's more manageable. Yeah. You can get out of bed in the morning. You can get on an airplane. You can drive your car to the supermarket like a regular person. Right. You can go inside the supermarket. La, la, la. <laughs> you know, look at me. Looking at the apples. Look at this. You know. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Um, totally. Okay. One last question about anxiety. Um, <laughs> you might note that I have a particular interest, but okay. Did you do anything to try to ensure that your children would have a minimal amount of anxiety? Asking as an anxious mother who wishes she had been more successful at that for her kids. Um, I tried not to pass on all of my anxiety to them. But I also am married to somebody who is from Minnesota, who is not <laughs> anxious. And so I'm hoping that because they had, you know, these two people around them, that they know that the steering wheel is not actually going to come off in their hands, that, you know, th they can go out into the world and be somewhat cautious, 
that's a, a sane behavior. The world is a dangerous place, but that it's also okay to, you know, leave your house. And that if you wear, you know, the wrong shirt or something, the world is not going to end. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you sure? <laughs> um, well, I tell myself that. I tell myself that all the time. This may be my new mantra. The steering wheel is not actually going to come off in my hands. <laughs> I think you could do Although, worse than that. Meta- yeah, met- metaphorically, I'm I'm not sure it's true, but I'm gonna try. I'm gonna hope. <laughs> yeah, hope. And and you know what? And that is the genius of Roz. She's so relatable. Like yeah. who can't relate to that statement on some level? I know. I think my favorite part of the interview was when she described going to New Yorker parties and heading straight for that dark corner where she could hide out with the other cartoonists. That's what I want to do at every party I go to. I want to find a, a few kinsmen and then retreat to a dark corner with snacks. I personally just don't go to parties, but I would if I could hang out with the cartoonists, yes. certainly with Roz alone. I mean, Roz, if you invite me to a party, I will be there. If you prefer, I won't even hide in the back corner. You know, I'll run interference for you. I'll pass out hors d'oeuvres for you. I'll sing I'm Too Sexy for My Hat to your guests for you. I will do anything <laughs> for you, Ross. I might have said that based solely on my years of loving your work, but there can be zero doubt after this conversation. Zero doubt. Yeah, right, Although, right. Julie, you've never offered to sing I'm Too Sexy for My Hat for me. I just you want are to point not that Ross Chastie. Okay. I, <laughs> I do love you. And if you, really, if you really want me to, I will. Okay, I'm keeping that in my back pocket for a time of deep, deep need. Okay, good, good. And with that, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Instagram. You can find Roz at rozchast.com. For more information about the 40th Miami Book Fair, visit miamibookfair.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.